Welcome back to Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and we're now on episode 14. This week's guest has an awful lot of strings to her bow. She writes, she produces radio, she's a broadcaster and she's written over 40 books for children, including the very fabulous Mixed Up Fairy Tales. But how did she get to do the job that she loves? Well, sit back and listen now to Hilary Robinson. Hilary, it's lovely to meet you and uh, thank you for letting me just sort of burst into your daughter's flat in London. It's uh, very kind of you. Um, Firstly, you've got a new book coming out very soon. Is that, you've done a few, quite a few now, is that an exciting or terrifying time? It's always terrifying because you hope you've covered all bases and with Jasper Space Dog it's actually a bit of a diversion for me. So typically I've always written, apart from one, I've always written picture books so I work very closely with illustrators. But this is the first book for older children that I've written so it's, uh, it's primary school age across the board. I don't actually like to put ages on it because everybody takes something else from it depending on what their ages are. And so this is just black and white illustrations and uh, it's quite a diversion in the sense that the narrative narrative obviously is more extensive than it is for picture books but also I've combined uh, fact and fiction and art and science with an overriding theme of humour just so that it's sort of entertaining and accessible to everybody and so checking it out and testing it out and working with reviewers, previewers, uh, librarians, teachers, children and everything to make sure they got the jokes was interesting because obviously humour is quite nuanced and not everybody especially quite young children will necessarily see what you're saying Mm -hmm. so trying to phrase things in such a way as they will find it absolutely hilarious has been quite an interesting thing to do but I've really enjoyed it. I have no idea that you had to go through like you're saying sort of testing it and and talking to different people before it actually gets to publication I thought that's it you do it and then you're good to go but it's a real baby isn't it of yours? This one is with some of the things that I write that's not necessarily the case but because Um, I've been trying to, the other aspect of it was that I'm trying to bring in reluctant readers with enthusiastic readers. Typically, you know, there are certain books which are designed for reluctant readers and other books for enthusiastic readers. And what I've tried to do here is bridge that gap so it's more of an inclusive approach. And so that was partly why I did quite a lot of testing. We've also licensed a font called Dyslexi, which is really good, I think. And also the format of the book, it's very much like one of those puffin books and the size of it and so on, because I wanted something that was portable. Because mm. I always say to children, a book is a friend and you can take it anywhere. You can't be lonely with a book because even if you're in the doctor's surgery or you're on a bus or in the park or you just haven't got anybody to play with, if you've got your book with you, you've got a friend. So I wanted it to be small and portable, to pop in a pocket Mm. and always be there. So it's only, it's quite small and it's just short of about 100 pages and it's illustrated as well. So um, I'm hoping that I've touched all bases, covered all bases and that that people will will really receive it well. And it's it's all about the moon landings and, and, and that's really interesting about a lot of the, the books that you've done is there's some historical facts that are in there for children to learn about things that happened in the past. Why is that so important? History was always my favourite subject. I enjoyed English but for some reason I think we all have a natural disposition towards a particular academic subject and if you have, if that's well communicated by a really good teacher it can make all the difference. 
And for some reason, I don't know quite why, I really, really loved social history, even from being a young child, reading about Florence Nightingale, one of those little ladybird books, hearing about Helen Keller and her struggles, reading about Grace Darling. Quite often I've realised now, looking back, there were female heroines as well. Mm. Suffragettes, my grandma was a suffragette, not an active one, she was a passive suffragette, so she was supportive but not out and about campaigning. Um, so I was always interested in women's struggles and... Um, When we did O-level history, as it was in those days, we were quite fortunate to do, um, I didn't realise it at the time, how interesting I would find it, but we did British social and economic history from 1600 to present day. And uh, the sort of turn of the century with the First World War and the National Health Service, the Labour Party, uh, the suffragette movement, all of that fascinated me because I could see how it impacted on lives in a positive Mm. way and changed lives and educational reform as well and social mobility all that type of thing but we also did European history and that didn't interest me this much interestingly enough sort of boundaries and kings and queens of Europe just really didn't communicate to me in the same way as people's struggles did Mm. so social history was always really interesting and I was actually brought up abroad and came back to England when I was nearly eight and moved up to Yorkshire and I remember looking went to a very old village primary school and I remember seeing the old log book which was handwritten and the children had had scarlet fever and the lord of the manor had been down with his daughters to deliver oranges to the school I remember being absolutely fascinated by that that these children with scarlet fever were probably sitting in the same place that I'd been sitting in you know just just quite recently and and being able to sort of equate what life was like then with how I was living at that time Mm. I found quite fascinating so social history was always a massive thing and then of course it's I think there's probably a history gene actually you know and I think it's related to storytelling to make sure awful things like the holocaust don't happen again and I think that's probably where it came from really Mm. so it was just a natural progression of my passion for social history was to tell these extraordinary stories in different ways. But also in a way that um, children can understand because sometimes you know some of us might have had a bad experience with it with a teacher at school where it's just like facts and dates and it's all a bit boring but if you can try and share those stories but in a really interesting and accessible way that's that's the key isn't it and it can make make a big difference because I actually went to school in quite a tough area just outside Barnsley and it was during the minor strikes and everything so it was it was a socially deprived area and um, we had this young history teacher from Wales and he was really passionate about his subject but he was also terrifying in some ways because I think he, they had to rule with discipline quite strongly. Mm. So he was extremely strict. But then when you, got to, when you got to know him, he was also very kind, intuitive, and would pick up on problems that kids might, might have. He was also very, very funny as well. So he was brilliant. And I never saw him again. I left school at 18. And I never saw him again until my 50th birthday and through a friend of a friend of a friend. Uh, he actually came to my 50th birthday. So that was really lovely to see him. And now I send him books for his grandchildren because he's now retired. Ah. So a history teacher, that particular teacher, a teacher can make a big difference. Mm. And I was just fortunate really that that was on the curriculum, British Social and Economic History, because it's 
developed a lifelong fascination now. What did you say to him when you met him after all those years? I said, I never thought you would come. And he said, I never normally go back. I said, I didn't even know you remember me. And he said, there was something quite interesting about your year group. He said, there was a lot of children with unusual names, which is interesting. So there was Melanie Hampshire, there was Isabel Garrity, and he reeled off Penelope Hope. <laughs> he remembers them all. Hilary Robinson. That was the, and for some reason, that, that sort of registered with him. And I think we were quite a unique group. You know, we were quite a capable year group. I mean, each year group has its own culture doesn't it Mm. and there were some strong personalities in that year group so I think that was partly it partly why and also I think he knew that I loved the subject so much that um, he remembered me from that and in fact for my O level I actually answered a question that we hadn't studied so it was all about medical advances but I just knew it because I'd sort of read up on it myself and he was absolutely horrified that I should even think to answer a question that we hadn't done in lessons but um, I remember just remember the dates of penicillin and um, antibiotics and scarlet fever and uh, Jenna and all of this stuff. You just loved it though, didn't you? Yeah, I just lapped it all up, you know, and and in some ways I think factual stories communicate more to me than fictional stories. Mm. So when I'm writing fiction, I'm incorporating fact into it. And so the moon landings was interesting because obviously it's 50 years this year. And I'm also fascinated by people. So obviously characters. Neil Armstrong was such an interesting man, such an interesting man, and how he came to be the commander of that and how his temperament and his intellect and uh, his just his basic disposition enabled him to lead that in the way that he did. And in this book, you have collaborated with a sort of new up-and-coming illustrator. Tell us a little bit about that, because that's something that's a bit of like a mentoring scheme. Yes. So Lewis James um, was mentioned to me by somebody fairly high up in the Prince's Trust who knew about my work and said that he knew of this illustrator who had been supported by them. Uh, with his ambitions and and I had a look at his work and I thought oh this could really work actually for Jasper you know there was something about his style um, which I thought would really appeal to children and one thing that he's particularly strong on is expressions and and a lot of illustrators find that actually quite tricky Mm -hmm. and his expressions were really good with the characters so um, he wasn't experienced in the way that you would have probably needed so what we did was we put a mentor in place for him so Mandy Stanley who I've worked with who's a branding expert um, she's a designer and she's also an illustrator and very patient teacher she's guided him through the process but she says she's learned a lot from him as well so so it's worked really well and the other great thing about Lewis is that he's receptive to that you know he wants to do well and um, and takes the advice really well as well and, and acts on it and works very hard and is, is quite prepared to go back and, and redo something time and time again to get it absolutely right. So he's been a total joy to work with. And um, because, you know, he has had some difficulties and that's why he was involved with the Prince's Trust, to know that we're making and helping somebody as well is also satisfying. Yeah. So um, so he's at the beginning of his career. And I, I wonder, looking back at your beginning mm-hmm. of your writing career, did you have a mentor or do you have... Because you, um, you talked about how you grew up in Yorkshire, but I know you... You've been all over Nigeria, haven't you? And yes. You've been from all over the world. And I, I know that your dad was a massive influence because he used to tell you lots and lots of stories. So would he, I suppose, in a way, be an, an unofficial mentor or, or were there others? I'd say there was two, really. Um, I think my father was very central to a lot of... My mother was very creative as well, but in a sort of different way, really. Um, she was a mathematician, but he was 
very good with words and he was also an author so he wrote academic textbooks and his first book was The Commerce of New Africa based on the economy of Africa because he taught economics in Nigeria and that's partly why we were out there because there were lecturers in the university there. So I was part and parcel from a young age of the process of submitting a text to a publisher, of proofs coming back, of the editing process, of meeting the editor. The editor would sometimes come to our house in those days because we were back in England at that point. Um, and then the books arriving, the excitement of that. And then once a year we'd get royalties. And um, I'm one of four girls, and so once once a year we'd get a new royalty dress, you know. So this was always a big thing around <laughs> yeah. Easter when the royalties arrived. So, so I was familiar with the process. So I think consciously or even subconsciously, I, f- I knew it was possible. So that's one thing, once you're aware of what the potential is or what you the possibilities are. You get a new are. dress if you, if yeah, you do Yeah, and you well. get a new dress. <laughs> yeah. So that was one thing. But the other thing was when we were in Nigeria, it was actually the Biafran War and it was really quite a frightening time. So we had a nanny who had been attacked and she was hidden in the house by my parents. And I do remember that very clearly and being quite... I wouldn't say I was disturbed by it because I think we were pretty well protected, but I was obviously aware to the point that I can actually remember in some detail with childhood reflections isn't always the case unless for some reason they're making an impact on you and I can remember her kneeling up at the window watching as this these tribes were going past and I think if they'd known she was in there then obviously it would have been quite a very dangerous thing for us all Um, so she was hidden with us for about two weeks and in the evening there were often curfews Um, so I used to read and she used to read with us as well these Dr Zeus books cat in the hat now we didn't have it I don't think we had them in England at that time we had a lot of American lecturers academics uh, military people business people American missionaries and they brought all this stuff out with them so I was actually introduced to Dr Zeus out there so I would be about five or six at this time and I remember being and I still am actually completely in awe of how he created these extraordinarily bizarre situations with so few words and it goes to show you don't necessarily need elaborate language to create these worlds and so the juxtaposition if you like between you know the situation we were in this wartime situation and the dangers of it and this crazy world of zoos was a massive influence so I'd say it was probably both of those and also opposite us there was um, quite often a lot of the families had houseboys and they often had very good relationships with them so in one case the houser houseboy was being he was being hunted down by the other tribe the Igbos or it was the other way around I can't quite remember and then he went missing and then it transpired that the Igbo houseboy from next door was hiding him so from a young age I realized actually that friendship was a more powerful force even in tribal situations if they knew each other Mm, mm. so there was a combination of influences that affected me at a young age which I'm sure comes out in the nature of the work that I do and the subjects that I'm interested in so in terms of the actual writing I mean there's a a whole variety of influences like that but in terms of the actual inspiration for writing I would say my dad and and Dr Zeus (laughs) what a combination (laughs) but what an incredible childhood you know I find my child was quite boring just you know (laughs) riding around the street on my bike but you know to have experiences like that 
It was extraordinary. They'd lived in Kenya before I was born, and my eldest sister uh, was quite young at the time. So then they came back to England, and I was born in Devon, and my sister was born in Essex. And th- so they had three daughters then, and then they had another one whilst we were out there. So Judith, the youngest one, was born. So they actually went to Kenya with one and came back from Nigeria with four children. Um, I think at the time, as children, you don't think it's unusual because there's so many other expats from different parts of the world in exactly the same situation as you. So I would say probably that that school that I went to is is where I felt most at home. When I look back at my education and look at, you know, I went to rural school in Dorset, lots of farmers' children, and then this mining environment, and each of them had positive influences. But I would say that growing up amongst other expat children where you all are essentially displaced to a degree Mm. um, was quite a unifying experience and um, and you appreciate it more now in some ways mm. when you look back and in fact I was at school with Rufus Norris who's now the director of the National Theatre mm. his family were big friends of our ours I don't know whether he'd remember me because he was a bit younger than I am but it does make you wonder whether those influences that we had and that, that family went off to Ethiopia yeah. after that yeah. you know comes out in some creative form really mm. as a way mm. of expressing some of the influences that you've had, I don't really know, but there, they, a lot of them did go on to have very interesting and different lives. Because you've also written um, books about bereavement and divorce, quite difficult subjects. Do you think maybe that you saw some difficult things and you experienced things that some of us wouldn't really have ever seen in our childhoods? Do you think that made a difference? I think it possibly did, and trying to fit in in different... When you come back to England and you know that you you're aware that your childhood has been so different and trying to fit in I suppose you feel a bit like an outsider looking in all the time so that, that I was very conscious of that but actually the copper tree series was I, I'm very interested in psychology anyway and what makes people tick but that actually came about because my uh, husband's sister-in-law died of breast cancer and she had been a teacher my children were quite young at the time and I was also aware that most of the children's books on, on difficult subjects then were um, had animals as main characters um, so I wrote a book for them just for them about a teacher that dies and her legacies and what she leaves behind because they, they were very fond of Caroline and I wanted them to know that Caroline was living on in them and the things that she did with them mm-hmm. so that was really basis for the book and then when I started researching it a bit more, I, d- I discovered that there's something called continuing bonds theory, which is where the legacies that people leave, if they're communicated and understood, are quite a positive way of dealing with, with grief. And when I looked at my parents' generation, and my mother's father, my grandfather, if you'd like, had died when she was quite young, and it was never talked about. Mm. And I think that caused her problems, mm. actually. Mm. Um, so now the approach is completely different. So... The more I got involved in that, the more I understood why people did things in the way way that they do now, much more understanding of children's mental health. Then that book, what happened was somebody, my husband actually came in and said, could I recommend a book with people in it rather than animals? And I thought, well, I have actually written one, but I I don't know that I want to let it loose with one of my publishers in case they change it. And Mm. it was so personal. So I rang Mandy Stanley, the illustrator, up, and I said, she, and she's an international illustrator. I mean, we're putting our reputations on the line here. I said, should we, should we do this ourselves? And she said, well, yes. And so between us, I mean, we didn't even know where to get an ISBN number from or anything. <laughs> um, so we, we just, somebody had once said, William Nicholson, the author, I heard him speak once, and he said, always make sure you have horses for courses. Don't try and do something yourself that somebody else can do better. 
So every aspect of our operation, we bring in on a contract basis all the very best people. And that book went out to counsellors, to families affected by grief, all sorts of people. So a lot of research was done beforehand. And so that was actually a real big success. You magazine, the Mail on Sundays, you magazine, you know, they had it as their book of the week and all this stuff. And then we were getting all these lovely letters from people saying how it had helped them. And a librarian in Bradford, actually, who I was talking to about something else, and I just happened to mention the copper trees. She says, oh, did you write that? So I said, yes. She said, I'm so sorry, I didn't realise. And she said, my neighbours um, lost her, my neighbour lost her husband, and they had a seven-year-old little girl, and uh, she had the copper tree given to her to help her daughter cope with with grief and and her little girl decided to go dressed as a copper tree for world book day that's so satisfying isn't it when you hear stories like totally satisfying and especially as it come completely out of the blue Mm. so well if it's changed one little child's life then it's been worth everything Mm. really and then we started to be asked for other subjects like fostering and adoption and divorce and family breakdown and that kind of thing and we're asked for poverty quite a lot now and also uh, parents in prison mm. so they're subjects which we might tackle at some stage but we've just been so busy with other things at the moment but that whole series is an interesting one by doing it yourself and because and t- you wanted to have control really I suppose because you didn't want it changing but do you think you would have had a difficulty in pitching it because how long ago was that because sometimes I think now we, we talk about it more but then I'm not so sure well that's so interesting you could say that because I've seen that the sales have really risen in the last two or three years and Mandy in fact the illustrator said to me we were ahead of our time there because this was 2012 mm. so you're talking seven years ago and now it's all you know in the last two or three years especially since Prince Harry and William have started talking about all these sort of things as well mm. it's much more in vogue and in focus and a lot of schools are in considering children's mental health in a way that they never did before so it is interesting how that has developed and you're absolutely right to pick up on that it has there's been a massive sea change mm. and uh, do you think it would have been tough to, pitch to find a main publisher for it um at the time possibly yes probably not now mm. so i think there's a huge appetite for that type of mm. material um but at the time yes i think it would have been more difficult because it would have it would have been regarded as one of those top shelf books, you know, mm. that you just bring down on. Mm. But and actually, someone asked for it in the bookshop. Have you got but, any books about? <laughs> yeah, but we'd actually designed it to be an accessible read so that mm. children could read it, whatever their situation actually, and feel comfortable with it. Mm. So, so it's interesting you should say that. But I think I think now it would we would find a publisher. Yeah. But at the time, I think it would have probably been more difficult. Yeah. So going back to your very first book that you wrote, um, because we've heard about the one that's coming out very soon, mm-hmm. Jasper, and, and, and these books about bereavement and, and divorce. But do you remember writing your, your first book? Do because you know I, I know there's a lot of people who are trying to get a publishing deal, and I'm I'm after your paths of wisdom as to to how to get out there and get published because a lot of people self-publish now. Um, but how did you do it? How did you become that that girl who was in the history class and uh, loving the history uh, but getting your book on a shelf well um the the very first book that came out was nothing to do with history actually it was more to do with the fact that my eldest daughter when she was quite young had a fear of spiders and quite a bad one and I couldn't put it down to anything other than the nursery rhyme Little Miss Muffet so I thought well I'll write a little story in rhyme for Sophie about a spider that wears shoes and all this stuff ballet dancing spider Sarah the spider and um and then as I wrote that I thought I'm quite pleased with this and then I discovered because I was writing it in doggerel voice verse that I could use more complicated language so if I said to most people where did you first hear the word contrary you would say 
Mary. Mary, quite contrary, (laughs) exactly. So with that particular form, I discovered I could use, even with very young children, very complicated language, and they would soon repeat it. So they might not necessarily understand the context. Well, they'd understand the context, they might not know what the word meant. So they'd say, um, so determine the culprit just who was the thief. Barney Owl was the chief to determine the culprit just who was the thief. You know, quite advanced language, really. And at age two, Sophie was repeating all of this. So I realised, actually, if I wrote it all like that, I could actually write it in a way that I might not write other material for children because I was actually working in children's television at the time. So I wrote it like that, and then I asked somebody to illustrate it. And um, and that proved to be a problem in the end because what happened was I started sending it, like they tell you to do, to all these publishers. And I was getting rejection after rejection after rejection, you know, 30-odd rejections or whatever. And then, uh, eventually, one of them actually wrote back and said, we do like this, but we don't like the illustrations. So I had to have this really frank conversation with the illustrator, who was That's very accommodating, really I know, tough. hard, really hard. And I've never forgotten how, how accommodating he was and nice about it. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought and hoped that maybe I'll work with him again. In fact, his daughter's an illustrator now. So um, did you completely change the illustrator? Well, the publishers chose the illustrator. And then what happened was that the, that particular illustrator had a very high-profile agent who then took me on. So through the illustrator that I met, I then acquired an agent who I've been with now over 20 years. So um, Mm. one thing leads to another quite often. Even though at the time you were thinking, this is a bad idea, I'm going to lose this illustrator and I'm going to, you know, it's going to be difficult for me. But actually, Mm. it all turned out well in the end. Yes, it did. And I am conscious of the fact that I, I, I actually did really like what he produced. But I was in a situation there that I had no choice, really. Either the book wasn't going to get published or I had to be completely honest with him and said, look, you know, they 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 would prefer to use somebody else. And and that that was probably one of the hard, most difficult mm. times that I've had to deal with in the publishing thing, because I hate to disappoint anybody, mm. but actually he was absolutely fine about it. He was a graphic artist in television as well, so he had plenty of other work on. Um, but he completely understood, and there was never a problem after that. So, um, And you say you wrote this book um, when your daughter was two. Mm. So prior to that, you hadn't written anything. This was a, a new thing, mm. so having children... Did that inspire you to write? I think so, because I was suddenly aware of the sort of things they were interested in. And I had another daughter after that. And um, and so Sarah the Spider came out when Sophie was four. So it took two years, that whole process from, you know, writing it, finding and publishing, getting it out there and so on. And then there were three other books in that series. And what I'm finding now is that mothers that were children at the time are writing to me to say, oh, because it's not in print anymore. You know, um, I've got my copy, but I'd love to get another copy. And I keep thinking maybe we ought to bring that one out again, actually. Um, And those two years that you were trying and and trying to get some sort of publishing deal, so you were still working. Yes. Um, I've talked to to other authors who, or, or people who've gone into other careers, that they still keep their sort of, job on the on the well not on the side that's their main thing but they're also yeah. on the side scurrying away is that the best way to do it do yes think? I think so I mean it, you, you do hear these rags to riches story but How if annoying. you want me to be particularly honest about it it's very very rare the JK Rowling's of this world come around every 30 years mm. or so Philip Palmer's or whatever you know you had Roald Dahl before that Nina Blyton before that Count them on one hand. Yes. (laughs) It's really, really hard. It's competitive. There's thousands of books published every year. And, you know, there's so much luck involved as well. And and I think also the way libraries are going as well, you know, a lot of closure of libraries, exposure isn't there. Mm. We get paid, actually, something called PLR for each library loan. That's, That's dipped now. 
and the independent bookshops you know it's it's harder and harder and harder now um, but it was never easy before mm. so I would say yes you do need to keep another job going I don't think you can rely on it you can't guarantee each year I have no idea from one year to the next what I'm going to be earning no idea who does idea. In, in self-employed <laughs> freelance world who yeah. does but so when when did you get to the stage that you thought well I can do I can give up the mo- most part of the day job and just do this most of the time well I was already a radio producer and I wanted to go in freelance as, as an independent producer and that coincided with this conversation about a book about bereavements and so almost this became another arm to the business so I'm still writing for all my main publishers so there's five main publishers but then there was this just this independent arm and I call it independent rather than self-publishing because there's several people involved in it self-publishing tends to mean one person that's seen it through the process but you know we've got a whole different sort of contracted departments that come in at different levels to deal with different aspects and Sophie Hicks my normal agent deals with the international rights as well so she the copper tree series has done really well in the far east so she sold rights to to Asia and Japan to Thailand to South Korea <laughs> and China and they're looking at it as well for some reason they really love these stories which is great have you ever been on a holiday somewhere and gone ah there's my book <laughs> yeah I have actually yeah it's not there I've never been on holiday out there but uh, so she sells the foreign rights for it all so in a way I suppose I never actually gave up the day job to the writing I gave up the day job to do what I was doing anyway but in a different way mm. and this just became a sideline which has become incredibly satisfying so I still write for all my main publishers Mixed Up Fairy Tales is perhaps one of my best known books well Mixed Up Fairy Tales is a pride <laughs> place oh, my kids are a little bit too old for it maybe now but because I used to find that sometimes some books had too many words in and they just all they wanted was something like that which was fun yeah um I think if, if anyone doesn't, I'm sure everyone knows what it is, but if it, it's just, it's it's fairy tales that are mixed up on different pieces of card, aren't they? That's right, and they just turn. interchange. So you've got a beginning, middles, a wide middle, and an end, and you can change the format of it. So you could have Jack, well, you could have Cinderella climbed up a beanstalk and dreamt about marrying an enormous turnip, for example. They, just, they were hilarious times we had with that. They just thought it was brilliant. And where did you come up with the idea so, of that? Well, that idea is quite interesting because it, on the one level, it is just entertainment. But on the other level, it and we've been doing some workshops on this with schools as well, you can develop those component parts into either sentences or even paragraphs or even chapters. So by having the ending in place, for me as a writer, knowing where the story is going to end, even though that might change, is where I start. So the ending is quite integral. So being able to explain that with mixed up fairy tales, this is the ending. How might you weave that through the rest of the story? It's children don't realise they're actually developing a lot of skills from that, it's and also clever. reading skills, as mm. re- reading ability as mm. well, because they see it as a load of fun. They think it's a game. Where in actual fact, they're learning the words as well. The idea for that came from the fact that I'd worked with Nick Sharrett on spells and smells, which then became became the big book of magical mix-ups and it was a similar type of thing where you know it was all about magic and stuff and I said to him I've got this idea but I can't make it work over both sides it's really difficult to make the words work on the left and the right with it all being interchanging and everything I could probably do it now because I'm a bit more practiced at it all (laughs) and he said well why don't you make the right hand side pictorial and he said I can do those illustrations and just have the story on the left that came out in 2005 and I think it's been my most successful book mm. so and it's still going strong yeah. and you talk about Nick you know with somebody like you you work with illustrators a lot and how did you get involved with him and also with with the illustrator of Warhorse as well yes, yes. Martin Impey well again a lot of it's sort of who you meet as you go along the journey really and um 
you know, there's times when I think, oh, I don't really want to go to this or go to that or whatever. And then I've gone and I thought, oh, I'm really glad I did that because I met so-and-so or I talked about that or whatever. And when you say this or that, what is that? A book launch? Oh, it could be a book launch. It could be a, seeing somebody speak at a conference. It could be an invitation to something. Um, Got to be sociable then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do. And um, and with Nick, what it was, was I had met him somewhere, and I can't remember quite where, and I got chatting to him. And uh, I think it was probably the Federation of Children's Book Groups, because we were both involved in that in different ways at one point. And when I met him there, I told him about this magic idea that I had. And he was really helpful, actually, because he said, well, I think it would work better like this. And then he came back with this other mm-hmm. way of being able to format it. So... The whole mix-up thing is actually him. Then the fairy tale mix-up was as a result of having my idea, as a result of having worked with him on this other idea. So so I met him that way. With Martin Impey, it was a completely different meeting insofar as one of our publishers, Frank and Watts, had paired us together. So they'd asked me to do a rewrite of Rapunzel and they'd asked him to do the illustrations. Now, in some cases, you work closely with the illustrator and discuss everything. But more often than not, if a publisher is asking you to do something, they do the liaison work. They know what they want the illustrations to do. And so they do all of that. You don't always get to meet the illustrator. Mm. And I never got to meet him at that point. That's quite strange, isn't it? When you're building a book together. I know. Um, And when the book arrived, I really loved his illustrations. I remember being quite taken by them and thinking, these are really powerful. And I thought nothing more of it until about two or three years later. And out of the blue, he, he tracked me down. I think he'd been in touch with our editor for my number because he wanted me to look at some work of his and um, some images that he'd done and a website they'd created and all this stuff. And we got talking then and that's when we started... Well, in fact, we started working on a series about a scarecrow which is yet to see the light of day. And we went to see a television friend of mine to see whether it had the potential for an animation. And we were literally standing in King's Cross Station. He was going back to Stevenage and I was going back to Yorkshire. And I don't know why we were talking about the First World War and we discovered that our great-uncles had been in the same regiment... And, um, and both had died at the Somme, and these moving stories that we knew about them. And I said, well, I've actually, I've actually written a book about World War I, do you want to have a look at it? And that's where that started. So with, with Martin Impey, who had already worked on War Horse and so on, um, we were paired by an editor at a mm. publishing house. And with Nick Sharrett, it was at some book social thing, I think. So mm. that was going back so many years now. Um, so I think that's where that happened. Um, Mandy Stanley, so she's another illustrator I love working with. Again, we were paired together by Little Tiger Press on The Princess's Secret Letters. And I was at a wedding sitting on the table. And it was one of the buyers from W.H. Smith that happened to be one of the guests. And she's, How convenient. And she said, you wrote that. She's, and she said, um, The Princess's Secret Letters, she said, that is the best pairing of an author and illustrator I've ever seen and that I've never ever heard anybody say that before Mm. and I still don't because it was a wedding and it was across the table and everything and I'd still love to know what she meant by that because I'm not quite sure but Mandy and I are very much in tune with our ideas and maybe uh, she meant that when you read the book it's almost like the illustrator wrote the words and the the writer drew it it's yes yeah, interchangeable much, lines going into one isn't it and I find Mandy and I are very much united like that you know mm. we talk regularly about everything it can be family life or whatever and we've got similar approaches and similar ideas and a real kindred spirit mm. and she is an absolute joy to work with as well so and in children's books more than anything with the illustrations being so important because writing I imagine is quite a solitary business mm-hmm. half the time but do you enjoy having that collaborative um, relationship with an illustrator? Yes, I do. And you are right, it is quite a lonely job. And um, 
you know, the fact that I work in radio as a producer as well is great, really, because I get the best of both worlds. Mm. But there's something to be said for having... We have our breakfast conversations. We, about 8 o'clock, we might ring each other up and talk about some ideas that we do it working on. And I just think how lovely it is not to have to have the trek into Leeds and the long car journeys and all the rest of it. And we're just sitting in our warm homes talking about our ideas and so on. So the loneliness has a flip side to it, which is the fact that you've got this space and this time and the lack of sort of commuter pressure and all of that stuff. But the flip side of it is you can go all day and not see anybody. So, you, you know. You need to get a dog. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. Lots of people walk dogs past my house, which I often spot, which is nice. And, and you talk about working in radio. Do you like having different jobs and doing different things? Do you think if you were a writer and nothing else, you wouldn't be so excited by it because you can come back to it a little bit fresher because you've maybe done something else? I think if, if I didn't do radio, I'd probably do something else. I don't know what that would be. So the writing would always be something I'd do alongside something else. I don't think I'd ever just be a writer. I think radio is a writer's natural territory because you are scripting, you are really building pictures with words mm. and speaking, you're building pictures with words. Whereas with television, you tend to write, and I've done both, you tend to write under the picture. Television and film, you know, the, the images do the talking and... Mm. The writing takes on a different level, really. The scripting is a different thing. So radio is definitely a writer's medium, so there are clear parallels there, mm. as there are with newspaper writing and journalism, that kind of thing. Um, but if I didn't do radio, I would definitely do something else. I'm not quite sure what that would be, but... Something creative. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So looking back on, on all the twists and turns, and you know, going back to your childhood, and you, you talked earlier about the amazing experiences that you had that, that really made an impact on your on your writing but what for, for you were the the pivotal moments that where everything all went right um we've, we've touched on some of them but were there others when everything all went right i think i think a lot of things that have gone right have gone right because things have gone wrong and i think he i heard lady gaga speak at the oscars and i thought i know exactly what she's saying there <laughs> she said it's not about the success you have it's about getting up when you've been knocked down so getting all those rejections and not accepting the fact that it was being rejected still getting rejections now and not accepting i mean obviously if it's constructive criticism and i think it's a valid point i think well that thank you very much that's great advice but a lot of the time i don't agree with it but I, I'm not disheartened by it either. That's their opinion, and I think it might be wrong. So it doesn't stop me going forward. Um, and do so, you think that's just because you're quite that sort of character? You've got to have quite a lot of confidence, haven't you, to think? I think it's more resilience rather than confidence, and I don't allow myself to feel threatened by it. So if I suddenly feel slightly... I don't allow that to happen. I just mentally adjust. So I train myself to think in a positive way. So I think a positive approach is a good thing. And I think when things go wrong, you, you have to say to yourself, well, what have I learned from this? How can I use, it's turning adversity into advantage. How can I use this in a way that will benefit me looking forward? So thinking of an example, I suppose in a way, Sarah the Spider, the very first book, I sent it to all these publishers, got lots and lots of rejections and almost felt like I might even start and do this one myself, even though, you know, self-publishing was very much in its infancy and frowned on, actually, in those days. Um, and then my parents happened to go to the London Book Fair because my father um, was writing a book about David Livingstone and they asked him to go. And I just said, oh, well, can you take this text around and just see if there is... Anyway, so they were going to go out for lunch from the London Book Fair 
And in the end, I think either my mother or father, one, my mother, I think, wasn't very well, so they decided to stay in the London Book Fair and eat in. And somebody sitting on the table happened to work for Dragon's World, so pure coincidence, and gave them this and said, oh, would you like to look at this? Our daughter's written this. And, and that then led to them writing to me to say, oh, we're really interested in this, and this, this is the publisher that took it. So there are a lot of chance encounters. Well, there was the wedding table. What is it with your family sitting on chance tables? Yeah. <laughs> chance, yeah. Maybe I want to just go round sitting at people's yeah. dinner tables. Spend you spend your time doing that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's it's acting on chance encounters and recognizing opportunities when they come along, and uh, yeah, because they could have those. they could have just sat at that table and just not said anything. You've got to be kind of confident, haven't you? To yeah, they could have. Oh, my parents are confident. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, that that opportunity could easily have been missed if, mm. if mum had not felt unwell or they had gone and eaten out, which was the original plan, I think. Mm. Um, that relationship would never have come about so um, with Dragon's World then what happened actually was that Dragon's World went under the following year so I think they went under into receivership the following year and, uh, and they were bought out and the company that bought them out it wasn't clear at first whether they were going to carry on with my books and the company that bought them out in the end did. But by that point, I'd got this agent who was representing me. So as a result of... So it wasn't just getting the first book published. I got an agent out of it as well. So mm. things lead into other ways. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was just saying to my daughter's boyfriend, actually, he was uh, talking about his work and so on. And I said, you know, the key is to get on with everybody because the more you go through life, the contacts you build up... and if somebody is looking for somebody to work with, they will always remember the people they enjoyed working with. Mm-hmm. Might not necessarily be the best talented, most talented. It could be the person they know is a good team member, somebody they know that they can get on with. And and I think that that's panned out as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So these relationships that you build up over time will all sort of come to fruition. And I can see it building already with my daughters and their boyfriends and they're, you know, it's, it's really hard when you start work and you leave university and you're so new it's to like it all. It's a blank you don't canvas, know, isn't it? Where do you so begin? so hard. And it actually does get easier in other ways mm. because you are building up this sort of network of friends, um, you know, who then might call on you at another time. So. And you've got to use that network. Sometimes I think we're not very good at sort of saying... I do a bit of writing, yeah. or um, this is this is. Oh, could you help me with this? Oh yeah, it's no, very I, am, I to have to say him. I do find that bad. I find that really difficult selling myself. So that's why um, I have teams of people that do that for me. I can do it for other people. If you wrote a book, I'd say I tell the world about it and say, you know, this is brilliant. I suppose that's the radio producer in me a bit, yeah. but I find it difficult myself. So you get somebody else to do it yeah. for you. That's Definitely. great advice, I think. So we've got a PR team that do it all. We've got somebody called Megan, who um, is absolutely genius at getting in touch with people for us. There's a marketing person that comes in on occasions as well when there's something specific, especially with the Copper Tree series. And so there's a whole team of people that we draw on to deal with different aspects of it so that I don't want to do things I feel uncomfortable about. Mm, mm. I'm happy to talk to you about it all, but I don't. I can't really physically get my book out of my bag and go to a bookseller and say, "Will you stock this?" I just can't do it. But it's, it's a big part of, of. You might write a genius book, but if you don't get the PR right, no one's going to know about no, it. No, that's are they? right. So I was in Bletchley Park yesterday, and I thought, "Oh, they could have the World War One books in here." And I asked to speak to the shop owner, which is actually quite difficult for me to do. But I will actually make sure that the other people in our teams will follow it through because I find that bit a bit difficult so I actually did the mo- I did do the difficult bit which was making that content saying oh well I've written these books <laughs> <laughs> and um and then other people will just take it on so uh, so yeah it's recognizing what your strengths and weaknesses yeah. are and, and did you ever think when you were thinking about 
a career as a, as a writer and, and when you you know were in that history lesson and you were loving all the history that you would ever have so many books published that and which have given a lot of joy to children but also have taught them such a lot because that's a huge part of your writing isn't it yes and I think the story I told you about the the little girl going dressed as a copper tree I think mm-hmm. I can't think of a story that will ever top that in terms of the impact that those stories have had um going back I always wanted to write children's books well, I always wanted to write because I'd seen my father doing it and I knew that it was appealing in different ways. Um, but it wasn't until Sophie developed this fear of spiders and I couldn't find a book about a friendly spider other than the Charlotte's Web, but that was for older children. I thought, well, I'll, I'll give this a go and give it, you know, try myself. Um, so it was always at the back of my mind and um, it was always something I felt I could do as a mum as well, actually, mm. to have that as a sort of something I could do at home because I love children's books. Mm. And I still read children's books myself, actually, picture books. I'm fascinated They're by They're often the, whole... the best, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and you know when somebody comes up with a genius idea they are the, a lot of people say they are the hardest to write because you're condensing you have so many levels of consideration as well it's not a blank canvas that you can just write whatever you want you've got to think of the language you're using the way in which you're using it how it's going to work with the images or how the editors might decide it's going to work with the images um, there's so many different component factors that um, I, the whole thing really fascinated mm-hmm. me and, I, and as I say I think I think I always believed I would do it I think I always did believe I would do it Ever since right back in those Doctors East days when I was writing my own stories, I thought I'd love to be a children's author. I always believed it would happen. Mm. So having that level of self-belief as well is probably a good thing as well. But, you know, you do go through these phases where suddenly, if you get a bad review, for example, I did get a bad review once. and uh... It stays with you. All the good <laughs> ones you forget, don't you? It's the good one. <laughs> yeah, I did. And it was in, well, that particular week, the Times Educational Supplement had written a great review. The Guardian had, and then... The Sunday Times, it was a bad one. So it was it was two versus one. You still remember the same the book, one. and I remember the one. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's. And it was Philip Pullman actually that, that did the great review, and I thought, well, if he can say it's great, yes. it must be great. So ignore the bad <laughs> one, but you still can't, <laughs> can't you? I know. <laughs> so so what's next then after the. Uh, the nerves and the and the drama of, of a new book launch. What's next for well, you? Well, there's a whole series of books on the Jasper series. So Jasper Viking Dog is the next one. We're going to relaunch the Copper Tree because we want to put a new and revised edition together with agencies to help people. So because it is so much more topical now and also I think the book can be in more relevant not necessarily improved but more relevant um so we're looking at that mandy stanley and i have got a series of books for an australian publisher called gregory goose is on the loose and that's been really exciting to work on so they're coming out your eight o'clock phone calls in the morning (laughs) (laughs) yes so two of those come out this early part of this year and then the other two later this year i think and that's got the potential to go on. Two more mix-ups, possibly. Wow. So we've already done spooky mix-ups, yeah. and we've done Christmas mix-ups, and I've got themes for other ones. So they're currently with Hodder, and they're looking at those. And and I'd love to write a book about the Brontes. They're my big passion. And Patrick Bronte, their father, I've just got so much respect for him. Mm. And I went to see them at the Bronte Museum to have a chat and there's a bit of a gap between, there's a great picture book about Brontes for younger children, and uh, there's plenty for adults, but that's sort of what they call middle grade, eight to 14-ish, nine to 14. Which is with, such an age where, uh, well, all children are incredibly, they're, they're open to lots of new ideas, yes. and, and they want to learn about it. I mean, I've got two girls, and I know that 
we've got a book at the moment about inspiring women and they want to know all about that yes. and that's a similar is it the Kate Pankhurst one it's not but um, I know the one you yeah, mean yeah that's a good there's a few around aren't there there are now yeah. great but that's a great idea well he was um, Patrick Bronte was a great feminist I would say and he was quite unusual for his time insofar as there was a, I've been reading all these sort of stories that nobody knew about really and uh, a curate's wife came to see him an ex-curate's wife in fact he had several curates and I think a lot of this is where the sisters got their ideas about romance from and their passion and all the rest of it I can see some various things going on there (laughs) Um, but uh, there was one particular curate who who presented himself in a very priestly way Um, but it turns out that he was a gambler and a drinker and a wife beater and all the rest of it and his wife turned up to speak to Patrick Bronte and with the young child and he had he advised her to leave him and that is unheard of in those days because women had no rights but he could see that she was going to suffer so much by staying with him and uh, he was widowed quite young left with six children the elder two died in boarding school so he took the Charlotte and Emily out Bramwell he was already educating himself and the youngest one Anne was too young so he took Charlotte and Emily out of boarding school because he was feared for their lives there and then he home tutored them all and he is directly responsible for opening their minds up in the way that they did and he was absolutely brilliant so it's a story that needs to be told well it's it's not just about him it's actually about all of them um, but I don't quite want to say the angle that I'm going in at the moment. Right, don't worry. <laughs> it, it sounds like you've got it all in your brain and it's all going to happen. So the plan is that's on the agenda to write next spring. So um, so I should have the other bits and pieces dealt with by then and that can allow the spring for my Bronte passion. Yes. <laughs> well, that sounds so exciting. So it, it is it's, interesting. It's something that it's just sounds like it just takes over most of your life well it's just I have this I must walk around with a distracted look on my (laughs) face half the time I think there's nothing wrong with being bored when I'm doing workshops with children I say to them now go into your thinking space and they love that because it gives them an actual excuse to do nothing they're so used to the screens and to after school activities and to doing all the time that actually there's nothing wrong with being bored actually there's nothing wrong with just contemplating and thinking it allows them imagination to expand and I, I find if you approach it like that they see it in a different way and when we were redrafting stories actually based on mixed up fairy tales they were doing their own mixed up fairy tales um, taking two fairy tales mixing them together and creating a new one showing them how to lay it out in terms of spreads 12 spreads a spread being two pages thinking of the ending first thinking in the middle bit and then going back and filling it's almost mathematical I know somebody that does chapters two four six eight and then does one three five and seven <laughs> anyway they were they were loving this and um, and once they'd done it and sort of structured all this story I said right the best bit now and actually for a lot of kids it's the most tedious bit it's the redrafting they mm-hmm. that word they can't stand yeah. they're so used to it so I said right it's the exciting bit now I said we're going to do our polish sheets so they were oh really I said yeah right what you're going to do now is you're going to look at what you've done in spread one you're going to think how you might rephrase that what words you might use that might sound a bit more interesting so you don't have to say said you could say something else I said you're going to make it really great that's why it's the polish it is the most exciting part of writing and they're like I can't wait to do my polish sheets and all it is is redrafting you rebranded it rebranded it yeah yeah oh that and it's lovely when you can work with children as well and you can see the the difference that it makes the books that you've written but also you know your your joy and enthusiasm well I think for them a lot of them were struggling with writing 
primary school, it is hard. Mm. And um, and to, for me to be able to give them a format which they could apply, it's almost like having a map for writing. Mm. And then seeing how that enabled them to think imaginatively. And they could stop and put their pencil down and have their thinking spaces if they wanted. It was really great, mm. and um, I'm almost thinking about devising it as some kind of lesson plan just to give away so that everybody else can do it as well, because, yeah. you know, these polish sheets instead of drafting <laughs> really works. Great idea. <laughs> so I've, what I've got from you, Hilary, is basically, if you want to be successful, you have got to go to weddings, sit at tables <laughs> with people. You've got to not take, ne- not take no for an answer. That's a good one. You've got to, um, if you can't do something, you're not confident about it, you say, get someone else to do it for you. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and just be downright determined. If people say no, just be. Yeah. I'm not taking no for an answer. Would I, you agree? Yes, I do, and I quite like it when people say you can't do something. <laughs> I said my husband is involved in food distribution, and a driver let him down yesterday early, quite yesterday morning. And I said, you know, well, I might do my HGV license, and he said, well, you can't do that. So I went on Google, showed him all these women that, that are HGV drivers. And I said to him, I'll do that now because you said I couldn't. <laughs> and you better watch when you can't say I next. And, the- I, and I said, how much will it be? He says, about five grand. I said, that's the only bit that puts me off. <laughs> <laughs> next thing is you'll be buying an HGV. HGV, yeah. So determined to do it. I like it when people tell you you yeah. can't do something mm. and then you make sure you can. Yeah. <laughs> you prove that you can. Yes. Hilary, it's lovely to meet you. And you, Thank Ellie. you Thank so you. much for, for telling us where it all went right and, uh, and we'll look forward to new books coming It's been we? such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with another Where Did It All Go Right? Follow us on Twitter at, at Where Go Right. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and Podbean. Uh, now, you want to know what producer Megan's doing? Well, I think she's still in Ecuador, but the internet connection isn't great. So it's kind of a good thing, really, because I do not want to see pics of her with what is probably now an amazing tan. And what have I got here? I'm sitting here in the sunshine with the noise of someone's lawnmower <laughs> going on in the background. Can you hear that? If you can't, I promise you it's going on. Very, very British. Uh, We'll see you next week.